Uh, welcome, everyone, and, and thank you for joining us on Colin for our new show, Unruly, uh, with Ryan and Rob. This is your co-host, Ryan Knight, and I'm excited to be joined by our other co-host, Rob. Uh, and our guest today, of course, is Compton Jay. Uh, Jay is the founder of the Populist Voice Network. He's the co-founder of the Revolutionary Blackout Network, and he's here to discuss the upcoming Third Party Summit. Jay, welcome to Unruly. Hey, how was everyone? I'm so happy to be here. Yes, we are very excited to have you here. And I already see we we, we have some people in the uh, that, that want to call in and ask questions, which is awesome. But uh, let's just kick off here. Uh, first, I just want to thank you, Jay, for planning uh, this upcoming third party summit, uh, because I think it's really needed uh, right now, especially if you look at the current landscape of the politics. Uh, in, in our country right now, with Joe Biden and the Democrats controlling the White House, the House, and the Senate, uh, and nothing fundamentally changing uh, or getting better for the people. Uh, despite the historic levels of, of inequality and injustice in this country, so people should be sounding the alarm bells that it's time for the working class and the left to move beyond this party that continually promises change to get our votes then governs for their corporate donors when they have power. And let's just look at Biden's actions in the last few weeks. Uh, he's calling to fund the police. Uh, he's pushing to expand oil drilling and actually has, uh, uh, has signed more new drilling permits on public lands uh, in the first year of, of his presidency than Trump's first year. Uh, Biden and the Democrats don't support Medicare for all, and they refuse to fight for basic things like a living wage uh, or a basic income uh, or reparations. And, and because the truth is that the Democrats are no different than the GOP and that they serve the exact same corporations and ruling class interests as the, as the GOP. So, Jay, my question, my first question for you um, is Biden and the Democrats continued betrayal of the working class a big part of why you decided to create the third party uh, summit? And secondly, do you think if the public is made aware of more third-party candidates with, with summits like this, that it, that it will empower more people to vote for third parties? Absolutely. Thank you for the question. And um, absolutely, Joe Biden and the Democrats, them being in power and the results, or the lack of results, I should say, of them being in power, controlling the Senate, the House, the White House, and nothing literally nothing fundamentally changing, at least not in a good way. That was absolutely a, I would say, a, a triggering factor for this uh, summit, because this summit actually wasn't, uh, Ryan, on the calendar for the year. But it felt so much a need. I felt like it was such a need for people to hear other voices, because as much as you can hate the Democratic Party, if you are a voter for them, you still want to know what the other options are. And I can remember back, Ryan, when I was a liberal, uh, you know, voting for Democrats. Um, and I always had an inkling for, hey, I, you know, this just doesn't seem right. But I never knew of any other party but the red and the blue party. So, right. so you know, that along with just the people need other uh, options. And what I saw in 2020 with, you know, Democrats taking the Green Party to court, getting them removed from ballots. It just felt like uh, the time is now for this summit. 
Rob, do you want to jump in? Yeah. Um, my, my question, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I, I think third parties have to be kind of the, the way moving forward. We've started to see trends where you're seeing in, in key swing states like Latin voters are starting to leave the Democratic Party and kind of pivot to Republicans. And we're seeing a lot of black voters, I think, that are rightfully questioning what their voting blue has tangibly got them. So in your opinion, what's the best way for third parties to show that they can be the parties of black and brown people um, and kind of collect some of these these voters that feel like the Democratic Party has rejected them and keep them from pivoting to a Republican Party that's also not going to be helping them? And what would you say are some minimum platform and, and policies required to prove that these third parties are actually taking black and brown voters needs seriously? Um, that's a great question. I'll answer the, the last one first. I've had several conversations uh, uh, with Nick, a fellow RBN member, about uh, about this. Um, I mean, you have to be anti-imperialist. Um, I think that's just like a a starting a starting sort of thing. Um, you have to be pro-worker. That is such a key thing. Um, and as far as trying to to speak to voters of color, black voters, brown voters. Um, there's, there's a couple of things. We have to have an economic plan. There's so many parties. I'm not going to say that. The two majority parties, they come to our communities with different policies. Oh, we'll do this. It's never an economic plan. So I would say for third parties that's trying to to, to reach out to those those voters, those potential voters, come to the that community with an economic plan because that's what's going to perk their ears up. And then the second thing is healthcare. Hmm. There, there, if there's an emphasis on that, because like my brother Nick says, Medicare for our, a single payer or healthcare is the number one issue for the black community. We're the least represented or have the least uh, rates of insurance and medical insurance. Um, all of the sort of uh, sicknesses that come that can develop from not seeing a doctor regularly makes this a very, very top, top issue. So those are the two things I would say uh, for third parties to do that's trying to um, up their numbers. But to kind of also talk about what you said about Brown voters going to the Republican Party. This is this is part of what I was saying. Would these same brown voters go to the Republican Party if they knew they had other options? It's like you you only you can jump to one ship. Just to, it's like there's only one other ship that's visible um, in the ocean. So you know if you leave one, you have to jump to that one. You feel that way. So there, it's just a great need for for the notoriety for the visibility is a better way of saying it uh, for third parties. I know I missed another part of your question. If you can remind me, I forgot one one part of there. Oh, I, I think you you got it pretty. pretty I got well. it. Okay, just, perfect. Again, I think we want to be sure that in our desire to create a party outside of the the two party system, I think we want to make sure we're not falling into the same traps. We don't want to just try to mimic a democratic party or mimic exactly. a Republican party. And so like, how do we, how do we as people who want an actual option to do be able to say, well, it's not, I vote for one side or the other, or I just don't vote. How do we, how do we channel energy and get people who might otherwise 
say, you know, I'm going to stay out of voting because I, I feel like the options aren't here. How, what kind of things can we implement to make sure that we're not running into the same kind of trap that, that the, the duopoly parties kind of place on voting? Well, this is a $100,000 question as far as trying to get more people uh, involved in the process, at least through um, through third parties. And I think this is the idea that uh, I don't know who came up with. It's just all of us discussing, maybe Rome, when, when I was having discussions with Rome, um, is go after you, you have to do we have to do a campaign. Similar to a campaign of, you know, Bernie Sanders campaign, where it's like, you know, maybe the maybe the 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 idea is a million doors knock where, you know, throughout 50 states, we we knock on a million doors to spread the word about it. Um, that's one strategy, because we were trying to think of a way. What can we do that doesn't require a lot of money, but we have the people that's ready to do it? And that's hitting the streets with your feet. Uh, doing the door knocking. This is also the strategy uh, we wanted to implore for the general strike. Like if we were planning a general strike, you have to convince people. So there needs to be a campaign, a, you know, two million doors knocked, spreading the word, uh, going into your communities. Um, you have to meet people where they are. So you go into the communities, you find out, What's happening in this particular community? Oh, there's a real, there's a, a lack of job problem. There's a, uh, you know, nowhere for our youth to go problem in this neighborhood. So you meet people where they are. You talk to them about their specific uh, uh, issues. And it's, it's literally just just that. There There is no easy way to doing this. <laughs> Believe me, we've tried to think of, you know, an easier way, but there really isn't an easier way than just going, speaking to people where they're at. Yeah, and you you bring up a good point, Jay, because, you know, one of the things that people say to me who've uh, been organizing a lot longer and been in, the, in, the, in, in this a lot longer than I have is, uh, you know, they're so fed up with the duopoly and uh, and because our political system has been so corrupted by big money that they, they say, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You know, electoral politics doesn't matter. Um, and, and what's even the point? You know, the system cannot be reformed. And I, while I absolutely agree that the system cannot be reformed, um, unfortunately, like you just said, you have to meet people where they are. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people uh, still... Uh, are playing the duopoly game because they haven't figured out yet that it's a game they'll never win because it's rigged against them. Uh, so I think it's important to use uh, electoral politics and third parties along with, you know, direct action and strikes uh, to, to educate the public a about the corruption of our two-party system, you know, and to show them a path out. Uh, because, you know, I think if just look at the 2020 election. There was $14 billion that was raised and spent by both parties <laughs> in the 2020 election. And yes, it was Democrats who took and spent more corporate money than Republicans. So I think we have to be clear about that. Elections are not won by the people in the United States. Elections are bought by corporations and the ruling class in the United States in order to rig the laws in their favor. Uh, but with that said, right, you know, we uh, even though 
electoral politics is not effective as a way to bring change to people. I think we have to use electoral politics and 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 specifically find third parties that want to represent the people's interests just to educate people about this level of corruption that we're facing. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Jay? Just the the effectiveness of, of electoral politics and is this a topic that the third party summit will cover? Absolutely. Um, so I should clarify the third party summit, like, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have candidates and, and everything, but we're having a complete conversation, meaning people who aren't necessarily for it, they want to come and give their voice. We want all voices heard um, at this uh, uh, summit. So absolutely, there will be some some dissenting voices, some voices that are kind of uh, uh, on the fence. But to address the issue, and this is an issue that comes up with, with a lot of leftists, and that is um, we don't, a lot of leftists just simply don't believe electoral politics is, is the way to go, even if it's a third party. Um, and w- what I say to them because I, I, I sympathize. Like I, I'm not a person that's wholeheartedly behind the electoral process, but what I am is saying that if you're going to participate in the electoral process, pick a party that aligns itself with your values, not a party that you believe is going to win. Because what's the use in you picking a party that wins if they're not going to execute any of your values? Like That's it right. doesn't make right. It doesn't make um, it doesn't make any sense to me. So so yeah. And do you think we need to see more solidarity amongst the third parties and more of a united effort against the that corrupt That is a great great question. This question here um, now with planning this summit. Uh, so we you know we have a bunch of different parties, uh, you know, parties that I've never even heard of that's going to be participating. But this was one of the, so Joe Biden was one of the factors. And another big factor on why I wanted to do this summit was I didn't understand why the third parties weren't strategizing together. Like, because the goal to me of the, of third parties is not necessarily to that the candidate is going to win is that you're, you have enough voters that the two corporate parties have to listen to what your voters want. That, that to me, yeah, that to me is a strategy. Go ahead. Oh, I thought you were going to say something. Yeah. That to me was the, uh, is the, uh, a strategy that we want to, um, kind of execute. But again, I, I, I get those that don't believe in electoral politics. I get, I get, I get that, uh, sentiment, like you've been worn out, you've been voting and voting for years, and nothing has happening. And now these people are saying, "Hey, let's vote for the, for the third party." But look what voting for a third party does: it pulls power away from the two corporate parties that everybody's frustrated with. It pulls power away from them. It makes them have to listen to us because. Joining them, joining the Republican Party and joining the Democratic Party and telling them, hey, this is what we want hasn't worked. So why not try a different strategy is what I would say to somebody like this. Why not try a different strategy? And I'm with you for with direct action. Let's plan direct action because voting actually has to come with direct action. And I think that's the reason why a lot of things that people want 
and hey, we want to vote people in, and that's it. but they have to be paired with direct action. And the civil rights movement is the best example of this. That it was so much pressure, the campaign, the civil rights campaign, it, which took multiple years, something like ten years. People just think it was a couple of years. No, it started well before uh, the civil rights legislation uh, was signed into, but. The, the president was pressured. The Congress was pressured to do this through direct action, through protest. So they have to come together. They have to be together. That's right. I mean, if you just think about it pretty simplistically, why would either corporate party ever change when their politicians get rich off preserving our corrupt system? <laughs> Newsflash, they won't change. They have to be forced to change. And the only way to do that is for the people to dissent and threaten the only thing these politicians care about, which is their power. And you do that, like you just said, through strikes, through protests, and electorally by voting them out with third parties. You know, I think that for me, I, I look at it as just a tool. You know, electoral politics is one tool in the toolbox that we have, along with strikes and, and direct action. But, but the thing is, is you, you have to challenge power. And right now we just see no, nobody's challenging power. The Democrats completely control the entire government and they're allowed to just go on TV and spout empty platitudes while, while the working class uh, in this country and in the world keep falling further and further behind uh, while we see just the wealth accumulating up at the top. You know, we have three billionaires now hoard more wealth than half of our entire nation. So, you know, things aren't going to get better uh, until we start to challenge their power. And and that for me is 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 if if we're gonna participate in electoral politics, it needs to attack the head of the snake, which is which is the duopoly. And for me, you know, for years I thought the Democrats were the lesser evil. Um, you know, I voted for Democrats for 18 years up until the 2020 election. But now with when when I finally kind of had my awakening, uh political awakening in in 2020 uh during that primary. Um, I, I finally realized it's like, are, are they the lesser evil when they're sinisterly kind of using marginalized people and, and telling, you know, marginalized people and working class people that, you know, vote for us. We got your back. But then whenever they have power, they, they don't they actually stab their voters in the back and they don't actually do anything for, for the marginalized communities who put them into power and who they pander to for votes. And so for me, that's very deceitful. You know, because a lot of people are sitting there, oh, all I got to do is vote blue and everything will get better. Well, it's like, not really, especially when the blue team is just basically lying to you and saying they have your back. When the truth is the party, sir, it exists to serve the ruling class and to serve giant corporations, just like the Republican Party. So I think, you know, having things like a third party summit to raise more awareness about the people who are brave enough to run against the duopoly I think it's a, it's an important tool in the toolbox. Uh, let's check in with some of our callers and see what they think. Rob, do you want to grab our first person? I see there's four people uh, on the line. Sure. Uh, we're going to start taking some callers. So, Kusha, I'm going to add you to the queue. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Hello. Good afternoon uh, to all three of you, Rob, Ryan, and uh, Jay. Thank you for uh, adding me to the queue and Rob pronouncing my name correctly. Um, oh, glad I nailed it. I'm really glad I didn't get it wrong. You did nail it. You did nail it. So one thing that Jay mentioned in his opening uh, about essentially like what he'd be looking for in third parties and third party leaders and whatnot. One of the first important principles he laid out was this phrase of anti-imperialism. And I'm really curious to know what he means by that, because 
oftentimes when I see from people in the United States uh, media who are prominent, you know, relatively speaking, left wing voices with like over 100,000, 200,000 followers on Twitter and whatnot, um, who are a part of the foreign policy. Uh, I mean, foreign policy is a part of their um, focus. I see anti-imperialism oftentimes lead to, and I'm not saying this as a result of, you know, like it not being a specific point, but for instance, like whether it's Caleb Maupin or Aaron Maté or Max Blumenthal or Ben Norton or Rania Kalik or Anya Perimpil, there's like a split. It's a very evident split you can notice within the left between that being one faction and then like Professor Cornell West and his wife, uh, Professor Anita Mahdavi or Yanis Varoufakis and Gisu Nia, a human rights lawyer, being on the other side of it. And essentially the split is, like, um, Max Blumenthal's faction essentially sees it like, it's not my place to criticize enemy governments of the United States, whether that's Bashar al-Assad of Syria or the Islamic Republic of Iran or Hamas in Gaza or Hezbollah in Lebanon, because I'm a citizen of the West, and I live in the U.S., and I pay taxes to the U.S. And if I say criticisms against enemy governments, the media and political establishment are just going to weaponize it as fuel for the war machine. And I'm not the UN, so it's not my job to endorse or condemn these enemy governments. My primary concern is my own government. And I think I take a lot of issue with this because oftentimes, like, the enemy governments that are very brutal, like, if you think of, like, the Taliban, they're a result of blowback of the United States. Like, they're the Frankenstein's monster from the Afghan Mujahideen being funded by Carter and Reagan. Same thing with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Carter backed them and supported them getting power. And this is an important part of the narrative, in my view, that needs to be a part of it. And, and furthermore, I can conclude on this before I would love to hear Jay expand on what he means by anti-imperialism, is that, you know, very much now the economy is intertwined around the world. This is very much a global capitalist system. And what Ryan was saying about the working class in the world, um, you know, being left behind, it's very true. And people in the enemy governments of the world, they're also suffering enemy governments of the U.S. in the world. They're also suffering. And the conditions are very, very awful and atrocious in Iran for workers. And there are so many people, just like Christian Smalls does for Amazon workers. I had the fortune of speaking with him recently. Um, does for Amazon workers in New York. There are people like that in Iran, like Ismail Bakhshi of the Seven Hills Sugar Factory, leading about thousands of workers and who's imprisoned and beaten. So I'm curious, is that something that you believe in, forming an international solidarity with not just workers, who are suffering under U.S. government allies, like in Egypt, or suffering from Israel if they're Palestinian, and so on and so forth, but also people who are suffering under enemy governments, looking to form those networks and solidarity. Because I believe there's a, a great benefit to having strength in numbers, and I wouldn't see why one would want to limit that, um, and so on and so forth. That's not to say that U.S. sanctions should not be condemned when they cause mass civilian suffering. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that the U.S. government should be invading or intervening with the CIA at all. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that the rhetoric should be to condemn the U.S. militarism and jingoism and to also condemn the enemy governments that oppress their own people. And I'd love to know your thoughts on what anti-imperialism means to you with this background that I laid out. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Jay, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, um, it's, it's very uh, simple for, for me. Anti-imperialist means you're against the taking of, uh, militarily taking of, uh, uh, what do they call it in the United States? Spreading democracy through the military. So effectively, uh, I would like the military budget cut uh, by 75%, for example. So I'm just giving an example. Um, to me, uh, 
to me, what makes a person anti-imperialist the core. I'm trying to think of the core here. The core, t- the core thing to me that makes someone anti-imperialist, it's also being anti-interventionist. It's also being, it's explicitly expressing the belief that. This is a very, very hard question that I've never thought of how to explain. So my apologies for taking so long. So I'm thinking as I'm, I'm as I'm answering this. Um, do you mind if Jay? Do you mind if I hop in and just, just kind of? Yeah, yeah. What? what but let me let me explain what I'm trying to do because what I'm trying to do is articulate what it means to be anti-imperialist for the regular person that doesn't know a lot of this foreign language language lingo so because to me that is key for getting more people in this movement most people don't understand just the concept of imperialism so i'm trying to uh find an effective way to kind of explain that without using um some of the terminology uh, that a lot of people are just simply not uh, familiar with. So I guess the easiest way, in layman's terms, um, to be anti-imperialist is just to be anti-war. That is the easiest, simplest way to be to describe what anti-imperialist means to me and what what that means. What I'm looking for in a, in a party. So, for example, the Green Party, which is I'm a Green Party voter. Uh, for the last two uh, elections, twenty twenty, yeah, if we're counting the midterms, for the last two uh, uh, elections, and what what particularly drew me to the Green Party uh, platform uh, was was there two things: reparations, because they're they're a leftist group, and a lot of the things they already believe in that you know. Medicare for all, living wage, all that type of stuff. To me, that's a given. So what I look for is is those extra things. And on their website, I remember this because I was I was researching this. Um, because again, I was I had such a misconception of the Green Party. So when I was researching this, these are the two things that stuck out to me. Um, their stance on as being anti-war. And then their stance on uh, reparations. Um, I hope that answers the question without uh, getting too deep into that uh, sort of foreign language uh, policy language. Um, I hope that answers your question. And I remember you from the last time you were you were on a brief show. You called in and I spoke to you last time, I believe. Yes, uh, I asked some questions about, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, W.B. Du Bois. Yes, and, absolutely. And so on. And so, and, I and if I can that. kind of jump jump into, because for me, I look at things like, I don't believe that we should be pitting anyone. <clears throat> I don't believe we should be pitting the people against each other. So I I stand in solidarity with the, the working class uh, in every country, uh, you know, in every corner of this earth, in Russia, in Ukraine, uh, everywhere in the global south 
uh, in China. I, I believe it's a false choice to say we have to choose Biden or, or, or Putin, right? I'm, I'm not pro-Biden and I'm not pro-Putin. I'm pro-working class. And I'm, uh, I'm anti any government and any oligarchy that wants to use its power to force itself uh, into another country uh, in order to steal uh, their resources and exploit uh, the working class in their country. So oftentimes I feel like, you know, there's, there's these, these repressive governments uh, force people uh, to choose, you know, is it us, <laughs> you know, are you going to choose the government that's suppressing you or are you going to choose the other government over there? And it's like, no, I don't believe anyone should make that choice. I believe that we can all stand up together for the people of this planet. I believe everyone on the planet deserves to live in peace uh, and dignity. And I believe what's preventing that from happening is that we have an economic system uh, that that pits us against each other uh, and divides us in order to enrich the ruling class. And so for me, uh, that that is what's most important here. And I think, you know, what troubles me the most being from the United States and being, I would say, you know, a, a liberal for most of my life who bought the narrative uh, from the DNC and from the Bidens of the world is that and from CNN is, you know, U.S. propaganda is very sophisticated and that it convinces people that we're bringing democracy to the world when we haven't even brought anything that resembles a democracy to our own shores. The U.S. brings capitalism, it brings imperialism, and it brings oligarchy to the world and then calls it democracy. And, and if you need any further proof, uh, you know, just look at how the profits of U.S. weapons manufacturers and oil companies are soaring right now while working people both in this country and abroad are paying higher prices. And this is intentional and a direct result of living under a system, under a corporate oligarchic system, where the government and both parties in Washington exist not to serve the people, but to subsidize big business and funnel as much wealth as possible to the ruling class. So for me, things like just fighting for third parties, things like organizing movements for liberation, uh, you know, movements for Black Lives Matter, movements for uh, workers' rights and, and uh, equality. That in and of itself is, an, is a fight to establish a democracy in this country because we don't have anything that resembles a democracy in the United States. Our government is completely controlled by corporations. It's controlled by the military-industrial complex. And, and it's controlled by a corporate media apparatus that does a very good job of dressing all of this violence, all of these wars, all of this injustice up and saying, oh, this is democracy. Uh, no, I'm sorry, but when three men have more wealth than half of our entire country, uh, that's not a democracy. We live in the most corrupt oligarchy in the world. So I do have a hard time when people who call themselves leftists are sitting there and they'll condemn the oligarchy in Russia, which is easy to do, but they won't condemn the oligarchy that they're living under. And many comfortable liberals are profiting off of, right? So their paychecks come from uh, uh, some of these big businesses. And so, so they're not willing to, you know, stick it to Jeff Bezos. It's much easier to say, oh, Putin bad. Uh, than it is to kind of call out the oligarchs in our own country. And so that hypocrisy is on full display right now. Uh, and I think that, you know, for me, it's like I'm not choosing Putin or Biden. I'm choosing solidarity with the working class internationally and, and, and with trying to build some kind of uh, to build a new system where people don't have to get exploited 
to enrich the ruling class? I think you both provided very strong answers, and I really appreciate how detailed Ryan was in his elaboration. Jay, I really appreciate you, um, you know, thinking in real time about what anti-imperialism mean, I, means. I think it's a very important question. To begin, I think I'd like to agree with your point that the military budget does need to be cut by hundreds of billions of dollars. And one of the most egregious euphemisms that's been slid in is that the Department of Defense is called what it is now. It used to be called more accurately and more aptly the Department of mm -hmm. War from when the U.S. Yes. took power. <laughs> the yes. There you go. 1789. And then 1947 is when the switch was Orwellian fashion made to the Department of Defense. So I agree with you on that point. It does. The budget does need to be slashed, hundreds of billions. And furthermore, we know that we have tens of billions being spent on like nuclear weapons maintenance every year. So this is absolutely egregious. The fact that there are thousands of nuclear weapons still by the U.S. and the U.S. is the only country to deploy them twice on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And absolutely it's well known based off the generals and the military leaders that it was militarily unnecessary. There was no strategic need. Eisenhower even said so. Douglas MacArthur said there was no strategic need. So, of course, the U.S. needs to play a leading role in that. And, of course, the U.S., since World War II, has played a role in destabilizing countries with the CIA and coup d'etats and invasions. We know with Iran was the first one in 1953 and then Guatemala in 1954 and Chile in 1973 and Argentina in 1976 and the Iraq War and Afghan War. That's all evident. And I think Ryan raises an important point by saying how uh, um, heinous the hypocrisy is by many in the liberal establishment of very easily saying, oh, this Russian oligarch, that Russian oligarch, like Mikhail Prokhorov, or the one who owns, uh, was it one of the British soccer teams, I think, Chelsea. Um, oh, they, right. they're so bad, and they need to be sanctioned. But they don't. They refuse to use the title oligarch for the U.S. billionaires. They're over, what, 700, 700 such U.S. billionaires. And I think, but at the same time, I think the U.S. left, being as weak as it is, being as stunted as it is there are many voices in the u.s left i, be, I believe max blumenthal is a big one of them and uh, ben norton another one it, that they do the same hypocrisy in having uh, a hesitancy a refusal to wanting to condemn the islamic republic of iran and its allies hamas hezbollah hashtal shabi the houthis and so on and i, I mean i have receipts on that as well i've seen max well, uh, let me let me interject they, here what is your point i, I, I don't think you for, i want to thank yeah, you for your question the point. i think your question was great but we also we have five other callers so we do have to have some discretion thank you so much for calling in i hope you call in again uh but i think it's time to get to sam who's been waiting uh for a long time yeah sure of course thank you so much for having me yeah thank you yeah, thank you uh, I Sam, like 30 seconds, if that's OK, before I think one of the main issues is a country like the United States that has taken such a forefront role in destabilizing areas and, and being an imperialist nation doesn't really have the, the it's when they push back against imperialism in other countries, it's kind of like, well, that's rich coming from you. And so I think a lot of times when we talk as anti-imperialists, I think one of the most anti-imperialist like best cases of anti-imperialism is what Cuba did. And Cuba didn't just try to push back American forces on their own soil. They also helped try to end apartheid in South Africa. They also were, were trying to arm and train uh, rebels in Africa to push back against imperialism. So I think as an American, you know, it, when, when the call comes from us, it seems like, well, that's, you know, rich coming from you, someone who has such an extended history of doing the exact same thing. And so I would understand that the global community kind of looked at it and, and, and dismissed it and brushed it aside. So, again, I think you can, A, say I don't agree with what these governments are doing, but also, B, say that if I'm the one saying, hey, you need to make change, I think the number one thing that could lead to 
global safety is if the United States decided to, to get rid of all their, their nuclear arsenal. And it, I think it has to be the countries, the biggest, most powerful uh, imperialist countries have to be the one to take the lead on action. But I don't think they should be taking the lead and pointing fingers and trying to dictate who is at blame or not. That's just my my two cents. But now we will take uh, Sam. Sam, if you can hear us, uh, just unmute yourself in the bottom right corner. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Hey, hey, Rob. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Jay. How are you guys doing today? Good. Good. How are you? Doing good. I'm doing okay. Um, so I, I want to talk about a, um, a proposal a thought of mine in terms of how to go about these next few like election cycles to create some really radical change. But before that, um, there was a discussion of anti-imperialism. And uh, the history of imperialism in, in the United States and empire in general is to defend the exploitative system of the, the U.S. dollar, which is inherently exploitative of foreign countries in the way that we uh, get a bunch of, we get other countries and tons of debt. They have become beholden to us and the um, U.S. hegemony. And our labor in the United States, uh, you can make a t-shirt here and you will be paid pretty well, but a t-shirt made in a third world country, that labor won't get paid much in terms of U.S. dollars because that value is extracted here. We pay them, and then that money comes back into our country in investments for us. So our manufacturing, with our manufacturing um, sector completely dismantled, we can't actually become anti-imperialist without letting that exploitative system die. The military is there to uh, perpetuate the influence that's required to continue uh, that dollar system. Otherwise, it would fall apart. Our country would fall apart. And I'm, I am anti-imperialist, but I think people need to understand that you're not going to get anti-imperialism and anti-war without actually sacrificing the power of the dollar. Can so, I piggyback on, on what you're saying here? What yeah. you're speaking to, I've, I've, I've had discussions um, in particular about this with Nick. Um, it's like one... Anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, uh, anti-racist—it's—it's it's almost not almost. Uh, they're so intertwined to me, and what you're describing is that intertwinedness that you're saying that if you, you in order you, you got to get rid of this other stuff. And just to clarify, when I mean anti-war, because to me violence is the war. So you you forcing somebody to work just to survive, uh, you know, survive life, getting paid small amounts, that's violence, that's war. Uh, you're, you're, you causing uh, Palestinian kids to grow up uh, with the trauma that they've, they've endured, uh, that's war. Sanctions is war. So I, I don't, it doesn't necessarily mean like physical fighting, because to me, War is carried out in other ways. Like I said, sanctions is one of them. Yeah. Um, you can, but you I, can, I absolutely you can agree. Away, you can take away a, person, um, a person's life, a person's um, time, the value of their time in terms of like um, how much they're getting paid just in general. You can take away their rights. You can um, dehumanize them and you know oppress them in other ways. Any any form of oppression there that's that's political and there to um, uh, extract a certain result, that is warfare, economic, political, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that, that exploitation 
is warfare. I don't mean that in the super, you know, radical way of saying everything's exploitation, but these things are actually, these coercive methods are acts of war. Um, so I, I, I agree with you, Compton, Jay. I'll just Jay. So, um, um, so to get to the point I was, I wanted to, to really get to, um, I wanted to ask you guys, if you, if you can answer me really quick, um, Rob, Ryan, and, and Jay, when were you la when were you the most hopeful over the last couple of years? Like over the last three to five years, what moment in time were you the most hopeful for political change? Um, that's an excellent question. I think the, the easy answer for me was after Nevada, when Bernie Sanders won, I thought that, you know, this was going to be a change. And, and I'll say with the caveat that I genuinely at that time thought that Bernie Sanders being elected president was going to fix a vast majority of the problems. And, and I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think I know that to not be true. Bernie, I think historically has been very weak on foreign policy. I think he is yeah. weak on dismantling capitalism and systems of oppression. I think he yeah. is more radical than what has been allowed in the rest of the political sphere. But when it comes to just Bernie Sanders as a person, I don't think he's the most radical person uh, anywhere in, in Europe. I think in, in a lot of other places that have more developed true leftist parties, I think he's more of a, a you know, center ideology in that. And so, but at the same time, I thought like, this is a chance for something to happen. Uh, and that also kind of speaks to how much bad has gone on in the last three to five years and how hopeless we on the left have felt that like, a temporary victory that was then followed by a quote unprecedented swing of momentum was really the best thing that I can think of. Um, I mean, the only other thing I can think of is not based in America, but what we're seeing right now in the global South and specifically in Latin America, we're seeing mm -hmm. a rejection of neoliberalism and an embrace of socialism. Whether you look mm -hmm. at Nicaragua where my dad was born uh, with the Sandinista front, um, you know, winning their election, uh, Evo Morales, there's the coup attempt against him. The United States does their best to install right-wing leadership. The, the people of Bolivia want socialism. We're seeing it in Honduras with Diomar Castro. We're seeing a push, I think, in the global south for socialism. Unfortunately, it seems like in the United States, we're so far removed from that, or the, the propaganda is so great that we think, well, but those are all dictators and those are all X, Y, Z. It's hard uh, from a domestic standpoint to be hopeful. But I think globally, there are signs of of potential improvement in, in a lot of these countries who historically have been exploited by the United States and, and the rest of the global north. And and when we look at like Western Europe and, and the IMF being used as a, as a bookie to exert their economic control over these countries, I think we're starting to see a shift away from a unipolar world. And I think that the, the Latin American countries embracing socialism is one of the few bright spots we have globally right now. With um yeah, with onset of Bernie Sanders and his political the political movement behind him really spread um everywhere. Um yeah. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna answer kind of the same way, saying, you know, I, I probably I, I felt the most hope when I believed that uh that we could make change uh through Bernie Sanders uh electoral campaign, uh especially the twenty twenty primary. you know that but now looking back, it's like, and having a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, space and, and kind of continuing to evolve politically, you know, look, Bernie did a great job of, of raising awareness about what I believe is the most pressing issue of our time, which is the historic levels of wealth inequality and racial injustice yeah. 
that are produced by our capitalist system. Yes. But the problem mm -hmm. is he took all of this awareness and energy and funneled it right into one of the two parties that exists to serve the capitalist class. So mm -hmm. I, I guess now, like, the, the, it, this is going to might sound paradoxical or, or, or kind of weird, but because you would think I, I wouldn't feel hope now that, that, that he failed and you can see that, like, you can't reform the Democratic Party. But for me, yeah. it's like the, the awakening of, of understanding that wouldn't the working class and, and the people overall be better off if instead of channeling all of this energy, you know, into a party that's working against us, like the Democrats and also the Republicans, wouldn't that be better if we put that into, into independent movements and, and or a third party uh, that actually wants to bring liberation and justice for all to the people? So that's what gives me hope is knowing that if we can raise the level of consciousness enough in our country and in the working class throughout the world to stop wasting our energy on parties and on movements that are just designed to keep the status quo in place. And we yeah. see that a lot. I mean, even like, and we see also how the Democrats have mastered co-opting all these movements. I mean, the, you know, AOC went from running for office and saying she was going to challenge the corrupt establishment to two years later becoming Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden's biggest apologist. So for me, the hope is people waking up and seeing that like these systems we have now, they don't serve us anymore. And, and if we're going to have a better nation, it has to come from the people. It has to come from all of us. It has to come from a collective and not a collective that is just going to go and, you know, give more power to the Democrats or Republicans. I just see that as a lost cause now. So I guess I'm hopeful, even though it's so uncertain, I, I have hope in the people. I have hope that people will continue and keep rising up and keep waking up and understanding that we all deserve so much better than this. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if that made any sense, but. Looking looking back, like um, with uh, what we know now and how we see certain actors in space like behaving and what they're voting for and how they're speaking now, I would say looking back at how we felt back then, there's a very thin line between love and hate. And there's mm. a frustration that we feel with right. a lot of people we thought would be much more radical um, and actually speak their minds um, today. Yeah. And, and Jay? Yeah, and for me, a similar time, but it was um, during a Bernie Sanders campaign, and it was when he came out to California, I believe, I saw him, was it Venice Beach or something like that? With, and I think AOC was with him, but it was when I was in that crowd, seeing the people there, and it was just all different types of people, all wanting the same thing, just wanting a politician to fight for the things that people want. And that's what it just felt like everybody was on the same page. Like all the differences that we believe we have, when I was in that crowd, that was all gone. It was like this person here is saying the things that we've been saying that we've never heard from a politician before. So that was a time for me where I felt like, wow, this this person could actually pull this off. So for me, that was the time. Yeah, I voted, yeah. For, I voted for Bernie. I know. Oh, I wanted to vote for Bernie in 2015, but I was an independent. Um, I mean, I changed my um, affiliation to Democrat, and um, I voted for him uh, this last election cycle. And 
then I, I, I changed it back to independent out of um, frustration for the Democratic Party. Um, and Me too. <laughs> well, that's, that's good to hear that I'm not alone. Um, so my most hopeful moment, like that, that moment you guys had was, was me in 2015. I think we all felt similarly back then. And I became much more cynical, but I still voted for Bernie Sanders because I believed in the message. Um, and after, after, well, I, my most hopeful moment was the George Floyd riots and protests in 2020. Um, there was a lot of co-opting and a lot of um, uh, other groups or individuals or agencies that came in and caused trouble. But I felt hopeful that people were waking up to the mm-hmm. thing, were realizing that after losing their losing their jobs and incomes and feeling the feeling actually coming to a realization that they've been getting screwed over for a long time. They just had they were too tired to notice it. They were too exhausted with work to actually notice how much they're getting screwed over. Um, I personally believe, and this will be, this is really taboo um, in the in spaces on Twitter and, and on the left spaces in general. Um, but with people like Miriam um, Williamson, like coming out for, like basically on the pro-war side of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, for Bernie Sanders to constantly be towing the line with Democrats. Same with AOC. Rokana is absolutely like, miserable in terms of his actual votes and behavior these days. I've become so cynical of all of these people defending the dollar system and the military industrial complex because of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Sumer and this extremely corrupt system um, that it's, if you're expecting to try to win it by, by just voting Democrat for someone that's more left or by voting for a third party, which is basically a neutral vote, in the duopoly that we currently have, we can expect to not see any change until there is actually World War III or maybe 20 years down the line when all these old people are out and there's a, there's a new young cast that takes over Congress. That's not going to happen for a long time and they'll be corrupted too in the increasingly more corrupt system. So my proposal is instead of giving, instead of the plus one vote for Democrats, the zero uh, neutral vote of not voting or voting third party, which and I'm for third party candidates, but just in general for this proposal. Um, and the negative one would be for voting against them by voting red. And my proposal would be to create a formal organization with five demands or executive order demands for Joe Biden. It includes student, don- student debt relief, um, uh, a public option, and you can continue, to continue down the line. We have five demands, and if he doesn't sign three of these orders, three of those orders, then we we would vote the opposite way to blow up the party. We will vote. We will actually vote against them. Well, with one million or two million uh, voters that include Democrats and Independents, and we will vote against them down the line, except for Justice Democrats. Um, and by doing that, we actually can show them how much power we have. Maybe they would actually sign before we were to do this. And it would be an actual threat to power instead of waiting 20 years of this back and forth and nothing changing in these last two election cycles. Um, I know it sounds really taboo, but honestly, I feel like if we had enough people that woke up to a simple message of if they don't 
sign these specific orders in an organized way, which the 2020 uh, protests weren't very organized with specific demands. Um, we'll vote red. And if we and if we end up voting red, they come into power and we get 2020 style protests and actual backlash again, where we can uh, exponentially increase the size of the movement again. That's what I think personally. Uh, I know it sounds really radical and a bit accelerationist because it is, but I feel like instead of playing at the neoliberal game, that would produce actual change. Uh, I'll jump in really quick. This is Ryan. Look, I don't think there's anything radical about demanding tangibles for your vote. And actually, there was a group of us who made it a, a, a kind of what you're saying. We, we, we had policy demands, um, and one of them was Medicare for all. One of them was a living wage. Uh, another one was uh, student debt cancellation uh, and yeah, a 50 percent reduction in the military budget. Anyways, we had there was a group yeah. of us who made demands of Biden uh, after the primary ended. Uh, and if he didn't you know, agree to it, then we would uh, not vote for him. And they did not agree to any demands. Right. No Medicare mm-hmm. for all. None of it. So we I did. I voted for a third party. I, I voted green in twenty twenty. Uh, so, no, I think that but I think doing that on a bigger level where you're you because the Democrats are masters of deception. The Democratic Party, they are masters of going on television, giving a speech um, and saying that, you know, we're going to, you know, spouting all these hope and change platitudes, saying they got the back of the LGBTQ community, saying they got the back of people of color, saying they got the backs of the working class just so they can get our votes, and then they sell us out as soon as they have power. So I believe that that demanding tangibles for your vote and and demanding specific policies that improve the material conditions of exploited people and of the working class is absolutely, there's nothing radical about that. And I think doing that on a bigger scale is a great idea. Um, I mean, I personally am not voting for Democrats, period. Uh, I made that, that, that because I just see nothing from the party that uh, will ever result in any kind of change uh, and so for the people. Uh, and so I actually believe that the left in America would be stronger if the Democratic Party imploded, because then we could, we could start to build uh, a real uh, workers' party and a real workers' movement. I, I think that's, yeah. it's not the right that's holding the left back in the, in, in the country. The Republicans it's, it's are the who they are. You know, they're not on yeah. TV promising Medicare for mm-hmm. all. They're not on TV making all these promises. Yeah. Uh, that they're not going to keep. That's the Democrats who do that, who are who make yeah. all these promises and, and then stab us in the back. So it's the, it's the Democratic Party questions. which occupies yeah. the space of where a true people's party and leftist party should be. So I'm all about efforts into, into making the Democratic Party implode or getting the people to understand that they should demand tangibles yeah. for their vote. And if they don't get it, yeah. vote third party. Uh, do not vote oh. for, the, for the Democratic Party. R- Ryan, like... Um, Joe Biden, I didn't vote for him, but he made a lot of promises on the campaign trail that I was actually in favor of. For example, $10,000 student debt relief. I think it should be all of it or 50000 But honestly, I think it should be all student debt. But the problem is they make the if, promises, then they don't deliver on them. They and do they that don't just actually, to get your vote, right? So that's the problem. They're not exactly. They're not held to. They're not held to account, and they yeah. don't answer questions from actual liberal outlets. Like Joe Biden hasn't answered answered why he hasn't like done it no one will ask him the question like they've refrained from it so they can continue getting interviews or being selected out of the lineup of, of reporters there at the time um it's i don't see anything actually changing 
And like I said, we can do, there's a positive vote. You can vote for them. Neutral, which is voting, uh, not voting at all, or voting third party in the duopoly. And then there is the actual stabbing them, which is the stabbing them on the, in the voting booth, which will actually hurt them. If we had a million or two million Democrats and independents, primarily Democrats, that had a formal organization, that had five commandments or points or like directives, get three of them passed, executive orders before the election, and we will vote your way. Otherwise, there's a big formal F you to the neoliberals that are not not delivering on their promises. And we would and and with the margin of votes needed to go blue or red being so small, it would blow up the system. Even if yeah, a red wave it's a came great in. it's a great idea and, and I think it's something to consider. And I want to be fair to everyone though. Let's get to the next caller. Uh Daniel. BC. And take next caller. And I still have a, a couple more questions for Jay, too. Absolutely. I know. I'm trying right now, let's see, to promote Daniel, make next caller, and it seems to not be. I see him right there. It says Daniel is next caller. No, wait. Yeah, Daniel, can you hear us? Can you unmute yourself and hear us? I hear something. I heard something. Okay, hold on. Because I have you on computer and on my phone, so let me try to... Daniel, are you there? Yeah, hold on. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Sorry about that. (laughs) Um, Hello, Compton. Hello, Rob. Hello, Ryan. This is Daniel. Um, My question to you, Compton, is uh, you said you're doing a summit. And how you, are you structuring this summit uh, for this third party? Uh, are you uh, are you structuring it to where uh, you're going to ask tough questions to the people uh, on your panels? And are they going to be uh, helping us understand these third parties better and everything like that? Great question. Uh, yes. So we're going to have what we're calling candidate segments. We're going to have four of them. There's two on Saturday and two on Sunday. Each segment covers uh, uh, topics uh, in particular. Uh, let me actually just pull it up here. So, for example, the first one is uh, March 19th. It's at 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, I think there's uh, seven or eight candidates that's going to participate and that particular one, but that one is about the military industrial conflict, uh, complex, the military budget, uh, the Israel Palestine conflict and the Russia, uh, Ukraine conflict. So essentially that is the foreign, foreign policy discussion amongst the candidates. And there's going to be domestic one. There's going to be, you know, climate change. So, but there's a total of four throughout the weekend. Oh, okay. Because oh, okay. the thing is, I'm then, kind of. And then uh, the next day, there's going to be a, a domestic one, right? About domestic. Yes, there, there is a there, there is a total of four, um, and one of them is domestic uh, policy. I just don't have the uh, graphic; is still pulling it up, and I can read it to you in just a second. But yes, there's there's a total of four uh, candidate segments that's going to uh, cover. Actually, I have it here now. So the second one is on uh, the same date, which is uh, Saturday. But that one is at 4 p.m. And uh, this one is going to cover a federal uh, minimum wage, capitalism, trade deals, domestic 
manufacturing, public school funding, income inequality. So this is our domestic se section, is that one there. And then on Sundays when we have our climate change um, and a bunch of other uh, items. I don't have that listed because we're still trying to determine the time with the candidates. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the question I have is, is um, I'm wondering if um, when you asked – when you ask these questions to the people in your panel and your stuff from this third party, are you going to, um, cause right now I've noticed there's a lot of mention about these third parties, like the, uh, MPP, the green party and all these other ones. And a lot of people are not having trust in these third parties. They're kind of, uh, afraid to vote for them or never heard of them. How are you going to structure this summit to bring the confidence of the American people that are on the fence about the third parties in this summit? How are you as an RBN group going to make the people that are uh, standing in solidarity with you to convince that the third party is a way to out of this two party delopery? Because everyone's saying, I, I'm out. I don't want to vote no more. I don't even want to even vote for third parties because of the, the scandals and all this other stuff that's going on. That's a great question, Daniel. Yeah, well, but it's kind of like it's similar to the answer earlier that you have to meet people where there are. But but the summit is actually like we're we're just bringing people together to have the discussions. Like we're not necessarily. Uh, RBN is not necessarily trying to advocate for specific uh, candidates. That's not what we're trying to do. We're simply trying to say um, in, the, in this duopoly, instead of voting red or blue, pick a different option. And here we're providing you with some other candidates. Um, so so that's what you know, that's that's what I would say to that. But the thing, but, the thing, but see, the, but the thing, Compton, is um, a lot of people are not convinced that if you try have these candidates and you're, you're trying to, and they're they're going to be going into the two party duopoly, what's going to make people convinced by you having the summit to attract people to this and say that this is an alternative? For the third parties, what's going to convince people? What's going to make people be motivated to come out and not be afraid to draw people to these candidates that are third party? We don't have the answer for that. That's what the summit is for, to answer those questions. So, for example, like we had a labor summit and it's just using this as a as an analogy. A lot of the one number one question was how we get union participation. That's not a question we had an answer before the summit. That was a question we were answering during the summit with conversations. So I don't have an answer for how are we going to attract it, because that's what the summit is for, to talk to people about how do we attract more people, actually. That's actually one of the panel discussions. Is That's the title. It's how do we attract more people um, to be involved in the third party uh, uh uh, third parties, any third party, not just one. All right, thanks. Uh, Ryan, Ryan, Rob, do you want to chime in on that as well? What do you think? I mean, do you think this is a alternative alt um, solution? Is a third party because, and, and do you think it's going to help people motivate people to 
listen in on these type of things? Well, look, I, I think that we're in a tough position in our country. You know, the, the people continually have less and less power uh, and, and the, the, the billionaire class and these two parties, which they fund, have more and more power. And so I'm all for getting power back into the hands of the people and, and living in a society that is more equitable and, and equal. Uh, now, fear is a big motivator uh, that the duopoly uses to turn out their base, right? So the, the, basically the message every election cycle from Democrats is you have to vote for us or Republicans will destroy America. And uh, on the flip side, Republicans have the same message. It's just the exact thought. They say, oh, you got to vote for our party because uh, Democrats are destroying America. And the truth is that both of these parties, and, and because of their greed and because they put you know, the profits of their corporate donors over uh, the, the dignity of, of the people and planet, uh, both of the parties are destroying our country and, and, and they keep us pitted against each other. So, you know, I often hear that, you know, that I often hear people dismiss third party votes as wasted uh, because they don't matter. But the exact and that's what I've also heard. That's why I wanted about, to ask that. Yeah, but the exact same argument can be made about a vote for either of the corporate parties because we've seen now for my entire life for the last 40 years that nothing fundamentally changes or gets better for the people when either party is in power. So for me, you, we've got to do something to break up the oligarchy, to break up the power, the, to break up the accumulation of wealth at top and the political power that's at the top right now. And so third parties is just one way, along with, you know, direct action and and building unions uh, and, and, and and strikes. Um, but I definitely don't think we should dismiss third parties. I think. You know, look, I think one of the other big problems is that people don't know. Like for the longest time, I just thought there were two parties, red and blue. You know, we're kind of brought into this country from the moment of birth. And it's like you're either a Democrat or Republican. You're either for the red team or the blue team. And and the truth is, like, if you want to have a democracy, you've got stuff that resembles more of a democracy in Europe. It's not perfect. It's still you can still argue that there's oligarchic capitalism in Europe. But you can also say that, look, people in Europe have at least they have better social services. People have health care. There's better roads, bridges, schools. And so right now our system is just basically capitalism on top of capitalism on top of capitalism. It's just everywhere you go in this country, workers are being exploited from uh, whether it's their job, not paying them a living wage or it's the, the, the energy company. Over overcharging them uh, for 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 their gas bill or their 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 electric bill, you know whether it's the cable companies, you know I mean th- whether it's their health care, you know the health insurance industry that's exploiting them. I mean every market in America is designed to exploit uh, uh, the working class uh, and funnel money upwards. So okay, we've yeah. got to break up that, that power, point. and I think third parties is uh is a way to do it i voted proudly voted green in in 2020 um i would like to see the green party continue to grow i I would like to see any political organization that believes in putting power back into the hands of the people uh to grow right now and so i think having summits like this is a place for people to learn more information look you're not learning about third parties on cnn uh or msnbc or fox news you're just learning about more of the, you know, inner party fighting and putting American against American and, you know, they divide and conquer us. And so I believe having forums like 
in summits like the the uh, the third party summit is an important tool to help educate people. And I also think it's a tool to like for us, the people t- to figure out what we do want. You know, I think it's about what kind of what country do you want to live in? What kind of an economy do you want to have? What kind of, you know, planet do you want to live on? And do we want to continue to live in a country that puts, you know, the endless greed of corporations over the basic dignity of the people? I don't. And so we've got to start asking these questions and then start finding solutions to them. And I believe that, um, you know, third parties are definitely a tool for us to continue to build, grow, explore and learn about. Um, and actually, I have a question for Jay Absolutely. Uh, on, on a way to bring solidarity. Oh, I don't get to address it real quick. <laughs> oh, sure. Well, I mean, well, here's my last question before you guys address that. Um, and I'll let you guys um, go on. Uh, Jay, how are you going to message this to bring people to this summit? And how is the messaging going to convince people that this is the must-watched or must-watch stream or uh, podcast or whatever uh, the meeting to convince people that this is the alternative to the two-party duopoly? How are you going to message it and advertise this or promote it? Oh, just, just doing things to promote the event, like coming on this show. Um, and I went on Bree's show a couple of weeks. Um, and I think I'm going to be going on a couple of other shows. I, I didn't get confirmed information, so I'm not going to announce those yet. Uh, to to talk about, to uh, promote it. Um, I did a couple of streams to promote the upcoming uh, summit. And then there's just the regular promotions every day. You got to, you know, there's no easy way of getting the word out. You, you know, it's a lot of repetitive sort of talking about it over and over and tweeting about it. So that's, you know, that's what I'm going to do. So in a, some, some of the same tactics as the general strike summit. And that was a, that to, to us, that was a great success. So we're, we're using some of the same tactics to, to notify people about the summit. Uh, and, then, uh, and then are you going to make an announcement and and um, have other people share it? Because I would like to help you guys in sharing the message. If you can make it convincing to people that are on the fence about um, these third parties, because like I said, we've heard a lot about the scandals with MPP. We've heard a lot about Greens not getting enough candidates and all this other stuff that you're hearing in different um, medias and outlets. And it's just it's making people kind of guessing questions instead of really being uh, motivated to hear about them. So I'm just wondering if you have a game plan in set to really push this to motivate people to tune into this. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think I already explained that. Um, it sounds, I think, um, a lot of the questions that you're asking. I mean, I'm not trying to sound mean. You're or, not sounding mean. I'm not, I'm not trying to you, sound. You're, what you're asking me is what the summit answers. You're asking me about motivating people for third party. That's not what I'm here to do. That's what the summit's here to do. So I'm simply here to provide the avenue to gain the information. The information is what is going to sell people on the third party. So it, it's not. The summit is what we're using to sell people on third parties. 
Oh, oh, okay. Right. Well, I no, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm just, I'm because I'm one of those people that I voted for a third party with Jill Stein in one of the elections, and they didn't win on that one. And I was kind of like, okay, that, and we we know how they got we got screwed in that. But I'm just trying to, you know, and I want to do it again. But then it's like, okay, you're hearing all the negativity from different venues and and stuff, and I'm just kind of like, okay, I'm kind of. On the fence, so I'm just trying to see how this is gonna convince me to say, okay, is this worth listening? And I just want to make sure that other people are aware. The way I view it is, there's this catch twenty two with third parties where that's what I was gonna say, catch twenty two, right? Thank you, Rob. They're they're called not viable because people aren't voting for them. And why aren't people voting for them? Well, they're not voting because they're not viable. It's this endless loop. And I think one of the, the the biggest things we have to do is we have to work on our education and we have to work on like, I, I hate to say marketing, but the, 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 the problem I see is you, you can look at the, the mainstream media landscape and it doesn't give proportional amount of time to third parties or to anyone. Proportional. It doesn't give any time to third parties. <laughs> no, and come on. See, when Sorry. you do see Come companies on. like Twitter, you see companies like YouTube influencing the, the fact that big tech also plays a large part and they get to act as these arbiters of information or arbiters of truth. It really does come down to how can we effectively message to people that, hey, you, we might not win this election, but the goal is like you can't just only start running for elections when you can win them. You have to like build power organically through the grassroots. And I think another thing that doesn't get talked about enough is there are examples of of successful reforms from a uh, electoral aspect. We can look at other countries. It doesn't have to just be in America or within Europe. And again, earlier I touched on the fact that we're seeing a growing movement of socialism in Latin America. Why aren't we talking to activists in Latin America? Why aren't we talking to activists in other countries where they are? Well, that's one of the questions I was going to ask is if that's going to be brought up with uh, the summit, if, if if those are questions going to be brought up, if or we're going to have those type of panels on there on the summit that are going to help kind of refine and give up uh, education to a lot of these people about these third parties. Yeah, I, I thank you again for your for your time. But we're going to try to. I know we got at least one more caller that we want to get to, and, and we got a few more questions for Jay. So, Absolutely. Um, Rob, you just brought up a good point that you know even in Mexico, the reason they got health care was because of a third party. Uh, so oftentimes it can be it can be parties that don't necessarily uh, win power, or win the majority, but they can force uh, the majority parties to their side. Uh, and, and that's really what it's about. It's about uh, building enough of a building, just getting enough power for the people that we can force these two corrupt parties to actually implement legislation that's going to be beneficial to the to the people. Thank you so much. I, I, that really answers a lot of my questions. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Uh, and and right. this is a good segue, Jay. Uh, I, I want one thing I wanted to bring up because I think it's a good way for for. I know you have different third parties that are going to be present, which I think is fantastic. Uh, but one of the main ways that both corporate parties and the media, to some extent, suppress voter choice in our country is they prevent third party candidates from actually participating in televised mm-hmm. debates where most of the public actually learns about candidates. And it's kind of ironic because the two parties who claim to believe in free markets, 
don't actually don't actually support a free exchange of ideas and competition when it comes to elections. You know, if, if both corporate parties are so confident in their ideas, then they should welcome debate with third party candidates. Uh, Jay, do you think calling for uh, do you think that calling for open debates in every election, both locally uh, at state and national, uh, calling for these open debates is an issue that needs to be at the forefront for every third party and an issue that could unite them? This is actually an issue that can unite them. And this is something that absolutely has to be done. And just to piggyback off your point, right? I got to say this, like, it's very telling that they don't want other ideas in this conversation because any third party idea is going to make them look as awful as they are to everybody else who believes in them. And that's why they have to keep those. They have to keep Jill Stein off the stage because Jill Stein can't come in here talking about income inequality, talking about a fair wage, talking about, you know, reparations. They can't have her because to have the main discourse in our policies or in our politics or in America politics, like that will be a shock to the discord, just like single pair was like when, when Bernie Sanders kind of made that uh, popularized. Um, so, so, so yeah. And, and we must make this um, a priority because it's so the duopoly, Ryan, <laughs> they understand exactly how to keep their duopoly in place. Do not let the yep. ideas of anybody outside of the confines that we've already predetermined in this space. Yep. We don't want people hearing any other ideas because if you hear anything left to the Democratic Party, you're going to realize that the Democratic Party is not a left party. It is so it, that is such an important point that you uh, brought up. But just to finish the, the to answer the question, it is very important on the local level, at the state level, that we that we focus on getting third party participation in debates. It's yep. so key. Yep, I think it's yep. I think it could be a game changer. I mean I think it's it's one it's one area we could all focus on and, and it's specific enough. Uh, and I think it exposes uh, like what you just said is that the reason they they don't want uh, candidates on the stage talking about policies that are going to improve the mm-hmm. lives of everyday people, right? Because they know that when they get power, their whole goal, both the Democrat and Republican parties, is just to govern for Wall Street and to govern for their corporate donors and to write laws that enrich their corporate donors, uh, the laws that are rigged to enrich their corporate donors. So if we can get candidates up on the stage that are actually talking about the issues that affect the working class, that are actually talking about policies economic policies that lift up workers, uh, not CEOs. That is, that is what, can, what can really start to build momentum for the kind of movement we need to see in this country uh, that, that, that puts power back into the hands of the workers. Uh, and, and until that happens, we're just going to kind of always be playing catch up. And I think also, you know, they, you know, like you said, they keep, there's a reason that, that the debate, the, the presidential debate commission they, they have a rule that they, they, they say, well, you have to have over a certain amount of uh, fundraising or you have to poll above a certain number. I think it's 15 <clears throat> percent, excuse me, to qualify for the presidential debates. And that's actually one of the reasons uh, that I think some a, a candidate like a Bernie, if he would have had the courage to run third party, he would have polled 
over 15 percent in in a presidential in a general election. Uh, And so basically, then you've got Bernie up there or a candidate like him talking about working class ideas. You've got Biden and you got Trump. Who do you think the nation's going to gravitate towards? Who do you think the majority of the people are going to want to be their president? They're going to want to be they're going to pick the candidate who's talking about policies that are that are going to improve their lives. And yet when what what you saw in the last presidential debate was a total shit show. It's about personalities. It's about drama. It's about, oh, Trump was loud. This was this. It's always about issues that don't affect everyday people because they don't want us talking about the real issues. They want us divided, distracted and, and, and fighting each other, because as long as the people are busy fighting each other and blaming each other, they're not uh, busy blaming uh, the two parties and looking up at the top at the two parties who are rigging the system against all of us. So I've always thought that uh, starting a, a movement to open up debates, uh, both on the local, uh, state, and federal uh, level, uh, open up all the debates. Uh, every debate should have candidate should have every candidate who's running who got on the ballot. Uh, and if you did that, I think you'd start to see a lot of change real fast. Um, okay, let's go to our last caller, which is Eric. And then I've kept you. Way longer than I should have, Jay. No so worries. Thank you for your no patience worries. tonight. And also apologies for any audio issues. I, I I bought these new headsets and they turned out they didn't work. Uh, so I'm just going off the my phone speaker because uh, we were having audio issues uh, with the, the fancy headset <laughs> that I bought that I shouldn't have bought. And I'll probably take back now because I don't have a lot of money. <laughs> uh, but uh, Rob, why don't you bring on our last caller, Eric? Eric, I think you're you're in the caller queue, so if you unmute yourself, I think we should be able to hear you. Hey there, thanks for taking my call. Thank you guys for bringing CJ from RBN. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really wanted to talk about what CJ brought. I think one of the things that's missing from the third-party strategies is achievable, quantifiable goals. So the million, uh, having a knocking on a million houses that achieves multiple purposes for a third party and it avoids the YouTube algorithm that we can't get around. Mm. It allows through that, through that motion to actually connect with those people, talk to them about that. We need, uh, you know, the candidates to be on those debates. So having those tangible goals as part of the strategy so that people can achieve them through this, action uh knocking on a million doors and other activities that could be done too as part of the strategy that in and of itself would grow the movement by miles because as you heard the previous caller was asking cj questions about how this is going to work because people need to see how things are actually going to be functional rather than just hearing uh you know lofty dreams or goals but tangibles and those are metrics that you can actually uh, talk to once you achieve them. So other quantifiable goals that they can I- implement or add to the strategy is how many candidates they're going to add to uh, to the um, to the runs in the states that are going to be actually part of these third parties. X amount of candidates that you're going to put on the ballots. Things that are actually tangible that you can touch and feel, so that people can gravitate towards those wins. Things that you can actually achieve. Without having that, people are going to continue to have that catch-22 that you were talking about, right? But once you achieve them, you can point back to them and you can say, here's what we did. What the current third parties are missing is just that. They don't have nothing that they've Mm -hmm. achieved that they can point to, right? So people can really throw dirt on their game because they haven't done anything. 
But once you start to achieve and show and prove that you've actually done something, it's hard for people not to gravitate towards winners, whatever that is. Even if the tangible is small, you can talk to it and you can build on that. That's what we have missing, a strategy that incorporates tangible, achievable goals and using uh, you know, what, what the other two parties use against us. We have the people. They don't have the people. And once people hear the message, they'll gravitate towards that. So I really love what CJ, you know, that idea of knocking on a million doors and having people go. It also creates a bond because once you knock on a, on a person's house door, you don't forget what they tell you. Right. If somebody came to my door and they said, hey, we can do this. We can achieve this X, Y and Z. And here's what what's happening today. You're going to remember that. And it's going to make sense, especially if the person that's uh, telling you, you know, really knows the message. And then it also creates another thing for the people that are actually doing the, the, the knocking on the doors. They're creating for themselves a buying a vested interest in making sure that the party is going to be successful because they're putting their time and sweat equity into it, right? So you have to have that strategy. So I really love what CJ and the RBN crew are doing. I think my question to, to Ryan and Rob is how do we bring alignment for all the independent media to get behind something like what CJ is doing. That's my question to you guys. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Well, I'm already, I mean, I'm already behind what, what, uh, Jay, what Jay's do, CJ is doing and what the RBN is doing. Um, I've supported, you know, I, I remember supporting their network before it was a network, you know, and when they just yeah. were starting it out. <laughs> so I, I'm firmly behind it. I think for me, you know, I think I think it's I think it's, what's really important is for uh, is for the people to decide what they, which third party they want to support, which third party it is. I think, you know, after the Bernie race, I tried to, you know, I wanted something tangible. I wanted, OK, it's going to be this. And last year I got kind of involved with it with the third party. And then I had to step back. I stepped back about a year ago because it, it was like it was all happening too fast. They didn't have some of those tangibles that you were talking about, Eric. There wasn't a, a, a solid enough plan. And so I couldn't put my name behind it anymore. And it was painful for me because, you know, the moment I realized that the Democrats weren't the solution, my brain just automatically like, well, what is it? What's the solution? We need something. We need something. And I think a lot of people feel that. But, but I think at the root of if we're going to have a government or, or a society that works for the people, it's up for the people to decide. It's not up for me to tell people you've got to support this party or you've got to support this or and i also think that we're still trying to figure out what the vehicle is you know i don't know if we know what it is and sometimes it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall you know right now i voted green party in 2020 they are probably they are the party that the, the third party that has the best organization uh of the third parties that align closest with my values. You know, they support Medicare for all, they're anti-war, they support a living wage. Uh, they have had, you, you talk about uh, tangibles. The Green Party has won, uh, especially recently, they, they just won a big local seat in Chicago. Um, they've won local races. Um, they haven't won the big, you know, congressional seat yet. But, you know, the Green Party also hasn't had this quote unquote progressive movement behind mm -hmm. it. Uh, someone ran an, an analysis and it blows my mind. So I, I'm going to bring it up. Oh, then I want to make just one. Yeah, but hold point. on one second. Oh, I got to so finish my thought. My apologies. <laughs> um, 
in the last two cycles, Bernie's last two cycles, plus the money that was given to AOC and the squad, it, all of it in total adds up to $270 million. 200, the, the working class and the people of this country gave $270 million from 2016 until now to try to change and reform a Democratic Party that you cannot reform. Literally, imagine if that money had gone to the Green Party. We'd have some Green Party people in Congress. You cannot reform a party that is owned by Wall Street. You, that's like saying, I'm going to move Wall Street left or I'm going to move the big banks left. You cannot move the Democratic Party left. The Democratic Party, since its inception, has been a party that represents capital, that represents the banks and the military industrial complex. So for me, it's about it's about helping people see that because I finally realized that after 2020 and start putting our and stop wasting time and resources into trying to move a party left that is telling us. Also, the Democrats are telling us loudly and clearly they don't want Medicare for all. They don't want a living wage in this country. They don't want reparations. They don't want a, a basic income. They don't want to cancel student debt. They're telling us that in their actions because they're not fighting for any of those policies. So what we need to do is take our energy and time and start and putting it into parties that will represent our interests. And, and that, for me, is the big thing. And that and, and, and let's let the people decide. You know, that's what democracy at the end of the day is all about. And I'm trying to I'll, I'll help people. I'll guide people. But I, I getting involved like that made me see that I also need to remain objective and neutral and not because I don't want to scare people the wrong way either. You know, I was lied and misled by the Democratic Party for 18 years. I don't want to mislead anyone. And the truth is, although right now I'd say the Green Party is the best party, it's still a ways away from being able to compete mm -hmm. uh, with the Democrats until it gets the, the progressive movement behind it as soon as. But they're still DSA. All these, quote unquote, progressive organizations are still dumping money, throwing money away, in my opinion, to the Democratic Party for, for what? What are we getting from the Democratic Party? Absolutely nothing. So that has to change. You, you know, we can't do this alone. We need the movement to get behind uh, actual parties that are going to support the people, not parties that are going to represent Wall Street. Yeah, I just I, I wanted to Yeah, definitely there needs to be a lot more alignment with the movement and what they are supporting. Uh, I know that we talked in, I think, recently with Brome, you know, had that two hundred and seventy million dollars gone to direct action, how much more mm -hmm. we can have done to keep for people's lives. Right. Yeah, so that's absolutely. Happening, right. So the other thing, too, uh, is to have charismatic, strong <laughs> candidates, not weak mm. sauce, like the guy that ran for the Green Party this last time. We actually have to be strategic for the people that we put in front of the cameras that are going to represent a third party, especially at the beginning of it. They have mm. to be vetted. They have to be people that are actually feeling the pain. And, and RBN talks about this all the time, having the people that are closest to the pain, because you can't have people that are so far away from the pain that they can talk about subjects, but when the, the rubber meets the road, they can walk away from stuff. We need people that are actually there in the middle of the fire, in the, in the frying pan, because they're going to feel the pain innately from what's really happening in the country. We need those people at the forefront. Uh, and I know it's not easy to find someone like that, mm. but we have to be strong and strategic to find those individuals that are going to be there speaking to what we want to have become a, a reality. Otherwise, if we, if we don't do that, we're going to get more of the I, same. We can't have weak folks, you know, at the forefront. Absolutely, Eric. And, 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 that makes and sense. I remember you now 
from the last call. You you were you also called on the Bree call, and I think I spoke with you before. But you make a great point, and this is actually a point that I've never thought of, and that is third parties need to define what is winning for them. Because if you get a voter who was a Democratic voter and they go, okay, I'm fed up with them, I'm going to go green, they need to understand that right now the Green Party is not going to be winning the presidential election right now. And if you don't define that for them, it's almost like they're going to get let down because they Americans are so conditioned in this win-lose through the duopoly system just – like leftists in leftists also have some of the same sort of uh, way we approach politics is still, uh, uh, you know, steeped in like how the duopoly is ran. So you can still have leftist policies, but the way you approach the conversation of, of politics is still from the mindset of the duopoly. And I'm saying that to say this, that winning is what the duopoly tells you needs to happen in politics that your person the winner that's how you know you've won but i'm saying with third parties third parties is being used as a leverage of power so you can get things done through the duopoly now there's not going to be anything substantial you're talking about just kind of like like fringe things done through duopoly by putting pressure on a duopoly through the third party by, uh, you know, voters going to the third party. But the reason why I say it's a great point is that if you get a voter who's normally in the red-blue game and then they vote for you all excited and you don't win, what are they going to do? They might end up going back to the Republicans or or, or, or Democrats. So we, we must start to have set tangible achievable goals i'll use the same terminology that you did tangible achievable goals like we're going to get 30 candidates on the ballot in california that's an achievable goal that you can say okay we got 30 candidates that is something your followers can say okay we achieve that but not to have these small like small things that you can achieve it kind of wears down your voting population that you keep voting but we want our policies to get through, but because of the system, because of the duopoly, and because of all this corruption, we can't. And so it'll be another, like another, some another level of frustration if we don't, as the third party, don't begin to do that. So that was a great point. And and just to my like, what I think needs to be done. Again, I think a lot of us are terminally online. I think that social media platforms can absolutely be used as a tool to help amplify our voices, our ideology. But I think it's very important to focus on like community, focus on educating just your neighbors, your family, just getting them to think outside the box a little more. I think drawing uh, inherent contradictions in mainstream media to point and say, well, look, this is what they're saying and this is where they're getting their funding from. And the way they frame it, you know, they're they're making X amount of money. CNN makes most of their money from advertising. And one of their biggest advertisers are pharmaceutical companies. Do you think that they're going to actively give you the perspective to challenge these pharmaceutical companies and push for a single-payer health care? No. If you start pointing at some of the these these issues with mainstream media, I think you can kind of get people to 
to remove the, the, the blindfold over their eyes a little bit and be more willing to see other alternatives. Because unfortunately for a lot of people, they're not as in the thick of it as we are. And so their version of politics might just be turning on the local news. And so educating the people around us, letting them know that like, it, there is more to it than just getting likes on social media or, or podcasts, which are very helpful, useful tools. But like having actual discussions with people, letting them know, like, again, setting expectations for them, giving them clarification. I think pointing to that is one of the most effective things we can do to just if nothing else, we just need to break people out of the stranglehold. We're, again, we, even without guiding them one way or another, I feel like people are sat down in this chair and they say, you have two paths to go down. And, and the, the key to it is first realizing that, no, we have more choices. And, and breaking through where a lot of people are getting their information to establish these views that they have, that they hold for years and decades and decades and affect the way they vote and affect the way they even view, like, politics in general, I think it's key. is just, like, us as, as people who are media people, we need to be able to do it in real life to talk to those people, let them know, like, I know things haven't been going for you. This is why, this is where we can give you some hope. This is where, like you said, uh, the, the caller and, and Jay, having tangible goals to point to people will add to this layer of legitimacy. Because unfortunately, I think a lot of times there's this this viewpoint that, well, if they were really legitimate, CNN would be paying more attention to yeah. them. MSNBC would be paying more attention to them. So breaking people out of that mindset of this is what legitimacy is, I think is going to be key to actually getting them to see the information we're trying to present to them so that they can make their own informed choices. Well said, Rob. Well, I want to thank everyone for the great questions. Uh, this is our first time uh, taking questions in a podcast, and it was great to hear from 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 callers. And uh, I, but mostly, I want to thank you, Jay. Uh, thank you for uh, planning the the third party summit and for all the work that you're doing with RBN. And where can people find out more in, information on the third party summit? Uh, and how can they keep up with your work? Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Ryan, for having me on. Um, uh, and, and thank you also, Rob, for having me on. Um, we're, uh, on Twitter, you can find me, uh, Compton Made Me, just like it sounds, Compton Made Me, on Twitter. Um, and if you would like to email us, RevBlackNetwork at Gmail, if you just want to get some information, if you want to be on our mailing list, for any sort of upcoming uh, items, uh, you can do that. Um, and then on YouTube, just search us Revolutionary Blackout Network. We'll come right up, Revolutionary uh, Blackout Network. So that's where you can find me. That's where you can also find information about um, the Third Party Summit. Um, and yeah, thanks again for having me today. Thank you so much and have a great weekend, everyone.